Uh, I hope you uh, picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon notes as you were coming in. Uh, for our guests, we've been in a uh, study of the New Testament book of Philippians, and we're actually coming down uh, the home stretch. Our study has taken us into the last chapter of Philippians, which is Philippians 4. So if you uh, look there in your sermon notes, uh, of course, the theme of Philippians chapter 4 is stand firm in the Lord. And so look at that overview of uh, Philippians chapter 4. This is what the church was dealing with. A fear of persecution was threatening to stop the advance of the gospel. Uh, False teachers were attempting to distort the gospel. And disharmony in the church was damaging the credibility of the gospel. Uh, The great need of the church at Philippi was to stand firm in the Lord. And in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul shares seven ways uh, for the church to do so. And the last two Sundays, uh, we looked at the first way, and that is to stand firm through harmony in the church. Stand firm through harmony in the church, which is the focus of the first three verses of Philippians chapter 4. And really the key phrase there is found in verse 2 when he commands the church to live in harmony in the Lord. And uh, just for review, a very brief review, look at uh, just three key truths that we saw over the last two weeks. Harmony is found in our common bond in the love of Christ, which is greater than our differences and unites us in our diversity. Second, harmony is found in our common mission to advance the gospel of Christ, which is greater than all other issues. And then third, harmony is found in our common destiny in heaven with Christ. It is totally inconsistent in light of the unity we will experience in heaven to live in disunity here on earth. The key truth could be summed up this way. From God's perspective, more important then the issue in dispute, whatever that issue may be, is learning Christ-like character and maintaining a harmonious attitude towards one another. In other words, learning to disagree without being disagreeable. Learning to disagree without being disagreeable. Now this morning we want to look at the second key way on how we are to stand firm in the Lord, and that is through joy in the Lord, through joy in the Lord. And look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 there in your notes. Rejoice in the Lord. What's the next word? Always. Again, and I will say rejoice. So look at those, uh, just three questions about this uh, verse there in your sermon notes. When are we to rejoice and how long are we to rejoice? Always. Always. Now that brings us to that second question. How can we be commanded to rejoice living in a world filled with evil, injustice, adversity, suffering, tragedy, and grief? That's the reality of the world in which we live. And those realities are inescapable and they are inevitable to touch every person's life in this sanctuary. But notice, verse 4 does not say we rejoice in circumstances, but what? In 
the Lord. In other words, we rejoice in our relationship with Christ. In our relationship with Christ, which can never be altered by circumstances. Amen? Which can never. Take your Bibles and turn to that Romans 8 passage. Romans chapter 8. Let's actually, let's go back and start at, uh, let's, let's go back to verse 32. And I'll read to the end of the chapter. And this is what we rejoice in. Verse 32. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. In other words, he's removed our guilt. He's declared us pardon. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, died for the penalty of our sin, took our place, took our punishment for us. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And then verse 35, this question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That, again, is the reality of living life in a fallen fallen planet. But verse 37, but in all these things, what things? The persecution, the distresses, the tribulation, the sword. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. How? Through him, through Jesus, who loved us. And how do we conquer? He says, because I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Once caught by God's love, there is no escape. So our rejoicing is not in the circumstances in life, but in our relationship with Jesus. Our sins have been forgiven. We have been declared righteous because there was another that bore our guilt. We have received the gift of the Holy Spirit as God's down payment to guarantee our eternal inheritance. We may suffer pain, we may suffer adversity now, but what eternity awaits us? An eternity that's been secured for us by the Son of God, and we will see Jesus face to face. And we will spend eternity with him, ruling with him as his bride and as his queen. And look at that next question. Well, what is biblical joy? How, could you, how can we define biblical joy? It's, it, notice, it's not so much a feeling. Joy is the deep, heartfelt confidence that God is in control of everything for the believer's good and his own glory therefore all is well no matter the circumstances let me read that again joy is the deep heartfelt confidence that a believer possesses that God is in control of everything for the believer's good and his own glory therefore all is well no matter the circumstances 
Romans 8, 28 and 29 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Notice that verse does not say that God causes everything that happens. God is not the author of sin. He's not the author of evil and injustice. There's much happens on this planet that is not God's will. That's why Jesus prayed, asked, told us to pray. Pray, thy will be done, you know, on earth as it is in heaven. So there is an adversary. There is sin. There is injustice. There is evil. So God doesn't cause everything to happen, but God gives us a promise. He gives us a guarantee as believers that He's placed a limitation on our life, that He will not allow anything to touch our lives unless He knows He can use it ultimately for our good and for His greater glory. Let me give you a great, great example of this. Uh, Turn over to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3, just a marvelous example out of the Old Testament. Sometimes it's hard to find these little minor prophets. It's probably the easiest thing. It goes to the very end of the Old Testament. Last book is Malachi, and uh, Habakkuk is the fifth to the last book in the Old Testament. It's a little book of only three chapters. And look at this fabulous statement that he makes at the end of the book. And then we'll give you the background for this. Look at uh, verse 17 of chapter 3. Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flocks should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. What you have there basically is circumstances at their very worst. Verse 18, though, Yet... I will exult, rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He has made my feet like hind's feet, and He makes me walk on my high places. Verse 18, the literal translation of verse 18 from the Hebrew text would be, I will jump for joy in the Lord. I will spin around for delight in God. So here we see joy at its best, despite the fact that circumstances are at their very worst. Now, let me give you the the background of this. I I wish we had more time to linger here. Habakkuk was a prophet, and he ministered to the southern kingdom of Judah right before God's judgment came uh, in the form of the Babylonian captivity. And this was a very righteous man, and he longed to see God to bring repentance and to bring revival to the nation. And when you begin the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is actually railing against God. He is angry with God. He is disappointed with God. I mean, he says, he says, all I see is violence and injustice and I see sin. Very similar to our day. Habakkuk lived in a day where they had lost any sense of moral absolutes. And so... Immorality was rampant, just self-gratification, just pleasure seekers. And not only that, there was the shedding of innocent blood. The land had literally been polluted by the shedding of innocent blood. And Habakkuk is looking at this, and he can't understand why God is not doing something about it. He's, He's not seeing God work. 
And basically, when you, when you boil down chapter 1, what, what Habakkuk is accusing God of, he says, God, you're, you do not care, and you're not fair. He's actually challenging the very justice of God. Well, he rails on for a little while, and then God speaks. And he says, oh, Habakkuk, I am working. And you really don't have the ability to understand how I'm working. And then he talks, tells Habakkuk, I'm going to use the Babylonian Empire. And I'm going to use them as a rod of discipline. And they're going to come down from the north. They are going to invade the country and lead the people away as captives. And I'm going to use them as that rod to break them of their idolatry, to break them of their immorality, to break them of their inhumanity, and to bring them back to me. Well, then you go into chapter 2, and God really doesn't fully explain things to Habakkuk, but he gives him basically three promises. In verse 4, he says, Habakkuk, the just are going to live by faith. Habakkuk, the just are going to live by faith. Can you trust me without an explanation, Habakkuk? Although you can't trace my hand, are you willing to trust my heart? And then the second promise he gives him, I believe in verse 14, he says, and the world, the earth, will be filled with the glory of God. He said, Habakkuk, you may not be able to see what I'm doing. You may not be able to understand everything. But let me give you a promise. In the end, I'm going to be victorious. And those that are with me. In other words, the outcome is fixed, Habakkuk. I give you that guarantee. The final word is not going to be the sin and the destruction and the judgment of my people. The final word is going to be the triumph of my love over my people. To renew and to restore. And then in the last verse, verse 20 of uh, chapter 2, he basically says to Habakkuk, he said, Habakkuk, shh, hush, calm down. I'm on the throne. I'm in control, and I have it all taken care of. So then you go into the third chapter, and now Habakkuk's attitude is totally changed. He begins the book arguing with God, railing against God. God gives him these three promises as an anchor to hold on to, and then he starts chapter 3, and he's just adoring God. He's praising God. And praising God, despite the fact he knows circumstances are not only bad, they're going to get worse. I mean, notice, we read verse 17. Look at what he said in verse 16. He says, I heard, and my inward parts trembled. What's he talking about? He's talking about he heard about God's message of discipline and judgment that was coming upon the people. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. That would be better translated, I shall rest in the day of trouble for the people to arise who will invade us. And then he goes and he makes this great statement that yes, circumstances are at their very worst, but despite that, I'm going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. So joy comes what? Not through circumstances, but through our relationship with Christ and the promises that he's given us. 
and that we know that God is causing all things to work for the good of His people and for His greater glory. And although we cannot understand, we can trust Him. Amen? Are you willing to trust Him with your life? Are you willing to trust His heart even when you can't trace His hand? Are you willing to trust Him without an explanation when there seems to be no rhyme or reason? And that's what God is asking us to do. Now, as we close, the back side of your notes there, how to experience joy according to Philippians. And listen very, very carefully. This is important because I'm going to have to run through this very, very quickly. I've shared with you as we've gone through this study that one of the primary themes in the book of Philippians is how to experience joy. You find the word joy or rejoice in the book of Philippians 16 different times, 16 times in just four chapters. And this is despite the fact that this book was written by the Apostle Paul, who at the time of the writing of the book had been imprisoned for four years. Four years he had been in prison. And when he wrote the book, he didn't have a clue whether he was going to be released or whether he was going to be executed for his faith in Christ. And it's despite the fact that the people he's writing to, the church at Philippi, they're under severe persecution by the Roman Empire. You know, we shared with our introduction to the book of Philippians that Philippi, the city of Philippi, was literally a seedbed. It was the heart of what they called the emperor cult who believed that Caesar literally was God, was deity. And that emperor cult hated Christianity because the Christian said, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And as a result, they knew the fires of persecution. So despite the fact that this book is written by a man who had been in prison for four years, doesn't know if he's going to get out or be executed, Despite the fact he's writing to a group of people that are under severe persecution, you find this theme of joy just running throughout the entire book. Now, do you remember, very, very important, do you remember what we have said, and I've repeated this often, what is the very heart and soul of the book of Philippians? It's the fourfold picture of Jesus in relationship to the believer. And, and folks, you need to get this down before we leave our study of Philippians. In chapter 1, we see what? Christ is our life. Verse 21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The application, we are to live for Christ. Chapter 2, Christ is our mind. Verse 5, Let this attitude, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. We're to love like Christ. Chapter 3, Christ is our goal. Verse 14, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the, my high calling in Christ Jesus. We're to look to Jesus in all things. And then chapter 4, Christ is our strength. Verse four, uh, four, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We're to lean on Christ. Now we need to see how this is also the key to joy, understanding this fourfold picture. Look at, the, look at the first point there. Joy, true joy, comes from surrendering my circumstances to exalt the life of Christ. Joy comes 
by surrendering my circumstances to exalt the life of Christ. Now think of Paul's testimony at this point. We've already alluded to it. When he initially came to the city of Philippi to preach the gospel with his companion Silas, they were thrown in prison. They were beaten. They were bruised. They had their feet in irons. But what do you see in Acts 16 that records this? There was no self-pity. There was no whining. They broke out, what, in a midnight praise service in that jail cell. And now Paul's been in prison for four years. And again, you don't see any self-pity, no whining. You see this incredible theme of joy that runs through the entire book. Now, how is Paul praying? How does Paul see his circumstances? I mean, what is Paul looking for God to do? What is he expecting God to do through this terrible time of adversity? Well, look at verses 20 and 21. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope. This is what I'm expecting God to do. This is what I'm hoping for. That I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now listen, folks. Joy comes through unconditional surrender of your life to Jesus. And what unconditional surrender means in very practical terms is, I don't come to God demanding that He give me a particular outcome that I want in life. I give God the freedom to arrange the circumstances of my life in the way that He deems best, for my good and His glory, even though I may not initially understand. I may not even understand fully until I see Him face to face in heaven. See, God's promise is not that we will escape suffering in this life, but that He will provide us the courage to embrace suffering as a means to reveal Jesus to others. I think of Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He talks about we have this treasure of Jesus in these frail clay pots, these frail bodies of ours. And then he goes on and he says, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. He says, we're perplexed, but not to the point of despair. And yes, we're persecuted, but we're never forsaken. And yes, I may get knocked down in the contest, but I'm never knocked out. And then he goes on, he says, I'm always caring about in my body the death of Christ, that the life of Christ might be manifested through me. It's through adversity, it's through suffering, it's through brokenness that that beautiful treasure of Jesus is displayed through us as we demonstrate to a world, a lost world, that Jesus is the true treasure of supreme value. And you can do anything to me, you can take anything from me, but as long as I have the true treasure, I can rejoice. Again, not in circumstances, but in my relationship with Christ. And see, God wants to bring you and I to the place, listen very carefully, where more, than, where, where more important than escaping the adversity is using the adversity to exalt our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's where joy comes from. See, the reason we so often don't have joy is we're demanding God a certain outcome. 
we demand, we have some expectation, we need to release that. Goodness gracious, folks, the one that is shaping your circumstances, it's, it's those hands, the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. And all loving and all powerful and all knowing God. He's a lot smarter than you are. He's a lot smarter than I am. And can we really trust him with our lives? Look at Psalm 43, 4. I love this verse, and I often go to it in my personal life. He says, I will go to the altar of God, to God, the source of all my joy. But where does he meet God? At the altar. Often when I'm struggling with disappointment, often, often when I'm struggling with sorrow adversity, I'll get alone. And I'll go to the altar, and the altar for the Christian is the cross. And the first thing God wants me to do is to give him unconditional surrender. To be able to say, God, I'm giving this to you, God. I'm trusting you with the outcome. So God, I'm trusting you to give me the grace to use this situation, to use these circumstances, to use this sorrow, this disappointment, this difficulty. Not only to come to know you better, but to make you known to others as they see my delight in you. Look at that second point. Joy comes from surrendering my relationships to extend the love of Christ. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Now we talked much about this the last two weeks, so I'm not going to say much here. But again, the simple point is this. Every single person that comes into your life, every single person that comes into your life, every single person, if you're a believer, is God's gift to give you an opportunity to learn deeper depths of Christ's love and how to express that love to others. And the more difficult the person, the more difficult the situation, the greater the opportunity. See, many of you are sitting here and you've been deeply wounded by others. You've been deeply hurt. You've been deeply betrayed. And you've become bitter. If you want to find joy, you go to that altar. You go to the cross. You go to Jesus Christ. And you surrender that. And you say, God, I don't understand. But you promised you wouldn't let anything touch my life. Unless you knew you could ultimately use it for my good and your greater glory. And so, God, what are you trying to teach me here? And, of course, what he's obviously trying to teach you is to learn how to forgive as Christ forgave. And the greater the hurt, the greater the wound, the greater the opportunity to learn how to forgive as Christ forgave. Look at that third point. Joy comes from surrendering my heart. To enjoy the worship of Christ. Joy comes from surrendering my heart to enjoy the worship of Christ. In other words, joy comes from putting Christ first and foremost in my life. Him being the treasure of my life, of my heart. Look at verse 8 of Philippians 3. Yes, everything else that would be in comparison to Jesus is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. See, joy is Christ being your first love. You're never going to know joy having a divided heart in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You, you, you can't be riding the fence. You, there's got to be that unconditional surrender where your focus 
and your commitment and your goal is to please Him, where He becomes your greatest passion, He becomes your greatest pursuit. In other words, I glorify God most when what? I am most satisfied with Him. I glorify God as I demonstrate that I'm delighting in Him, that I'm valuing Him above all other things, above all other relationships. You know, I'll give you just a, a little just earthly illustration of this. It falls far short. Well, Andy was proposing and getting engaged. Kathy and I were celebrating our 42nd wedding anniversary this past week. And uh, Andy, you need to listen to this. This will be a good lesson for you, boy, when you start out. Now, we've been married 42 years. So after 42 years and after 10 children and 21 grandchildren, every one of my children will, will tell you this, if you were to ask them. From day one, the most important relationship in the Merritt family has been this one right here, Kathy and I. That's been the most important relationship. And Kathy and I have done our best. I mean, we've had our struggles, but we've done our best to maintain that focus. I mean, we realize the best thing that we could do for our children would be to love one another as husband and wife. And it would be in our love that they would find their security. But to make that commitment required some decisions, ordering of our time. Many of you know how we religiously, to this very day, have our weekly date night. And it was, and we started this one, I've told you this before, when the kids were little and they didn't understand, that boo-hoo, why can't we go with you? And uh, if you haven't heard this, I'd get, I'd get on their level, I'd get on my knees, I'd get eyeball to eyeball. I can remember doing this with Jonathan, Christy, when they were, all of them when they were little. And saying, you know what? Me and mom had something going on long before you came along. And we plan to have something going on long after you leave this house. So just get used to it, because this is the way it's going to be. And, and my, my point is, that's the attitude that we need to bring to our relationship with Christ. Maintaining Him as our first love. Realizing it's so easy to drift from that. Again, think of that church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, where he commended them about so many things. They were involved in so many wonderful works and ministries. But he said, I have this against you. You've left your first love. You're so involved in taking care of my children, you're neglecting me. Your bridegroom. Look at... Uh, Look at Hebrews 10, 34, and I'll tell you why I'm, I put this there. And when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with, what's the next word? Joy. Why? You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. The writer of Hebrews is talking to these believers in the city of Jerusalem, who is a result of persecution, literally lost everything. Many of them were in prison. Many of them had been tortured. But they had lost everything. Despite that, they said they accepted it with what? With joy. Why? Because Jesus was first place. They had come to the place where they realized our joy is not in circumstances. It's in our relationship with Jesus that can never be altered. Nothing can separate us from Jesus. We have an eternity with him awaiting us. And they had gotten to the place where they could say, Jesus is enough. I mean, can you say that? Can I say that? 
Can we honestly say, I mean, if literally everything was taken, Jesus, you know, this is the primary lesson in the book of Job, and we often miss this. The test, would Job be able to come to the place after losing everything, and he could say, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus is my delight. I rejoice in him. Not my circumstances, but in him. And then notice that last point as we close. Joy comes from surrendering my weakness to express the strength of Christ. Philippians 4.13, I love how this reads from the Phillips version. That's a great version of the New Testament, by the way. Uh, very true to the Greek. Uh, it says, I am ready for anything. I love that. I am ready for anything through the strength of the one who lives within me. And then look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Isn't this wonderful? Apostle Paul says, I was given a physical handicap, one of Satan's angels. Who's in control, folks? God. So God permitted this. He says, God gave me a physical handicap. He gave me one of Satan. He allowed that to happen. He permitted that. He says, to harass me and effectually stop any conceit. Three times, three times I begged the Lord for it to leave me. But his reply has been, my grace is enough for you. For where there is weakness, my power is shown the more completely. And then here's Paul's response. Therefore, I have cheerfully made up my mind to be proud of my weaknesses because they mean a deeper experience of the power of Christ. I can even enjoy weaknesses, sufferings, privations, persecutions, and difficulties for Christ's sake. For my very weakness makes me strong in Him. So your greatest weakness is God's greatest opportunity to demonstrate His power. So what is the pathway to true joy according to the book of Philippians? It's surrendering my circumstances to God, not to get a particular outcome, but to exalt Christ. It's surrendering my relationships to Christ, to learn to love as He loved and to express that love to others. It's surrendering my heart to Christ to keep Him first place, to learn that He is enough, to find my delight, my satisfaction in Him and Him alone. And then it's surrendering my weakness to Him that His power might be perfected. Father, thank You for this wonderful truth from the book of Philippians. As we see the path to joy is that pathway of unconditional surrender to you. So Lord, speak to our hearts. I trust you have spoken to your people today. Lord, I know on this side of eternity we have many struggles and we often lose the very perspective we've talked about tonight. We often need those course corrections where we come back to that unconditional surrender and uh, putting you first. So Lord, uh, speak to your people and um, have your way in our hearts and our lives, which in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we have our time of invitation, um, you could be here this morning and you are not a follower of Christ. Uh, you've never put your trust in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. When he died in your place, 
to take the punishment that you deserve for your sin. As God treated Jesus on the cross just as if he had lived your sinful life. So that now he could treat you just like you had lived Christ's sinless life. As you put your faith in him, as you receive the gift of forgiveness, as you invite him in for him to take up residence in your heart, to forgive you of your sins, take control of your life, and I would plead with you, put your trust in Jesus. Make your heart his home. Know his forgiveness. Know his life. And begin to walk that pathway of joy. And then for you believers, this message was directed at you. How has God spoken? And I trust you'll be responding in your heart to however God has spoken. I'll be standing here to greet anyone that has a decision of any public nature, profession of faith, uniting with the church. Would you please stand and uh, let's all be responding in our hearts to the truth we've heard.